Welcome to the Reconcile Community Church podcast. We hope and pray that the resources that will be shared on here would be a blessing to you. If you want more information or to support our church financially as we do the work in the beautiful Queen City of Cincinnati, Ohio, you can find more information about that at www.reconcilecincy.org. Be blessed. And welcome for all of those who are here in person and also those who are online. We are continuing in our sermon series entitled Foundations, entitled Foundations. And so we've walked through uh, the first two of our core beliefs where we talked about multi-ethnicity, we talked about justice. But today we're going to talk about uh, a term that I think um, scares a lot of people um, because of the unknown. And that's this idea of disciple making, uh, people hear that and they're like, what is that? And then at the same time, uh, when pastors tell them you need to be making disciples, or you hear this word discipleship, it kind of spooks people out. And they're like, man, this is like Mufasa, Mufasa, Mufasa. They don't, they don't like that word. And I think it comes with a lot of, a lot of, um, mis- misconceptions. And hopefully uh, during this time, uh, we can demystify this, that this term, this idea of us making disciples would not be something that you feel like is a high level uh, class that you take. But my hope and my prayer is that you will see from the scriptures that it's a lifestyle that you live. Um, And so uh, with that, let's pray uh, a brief word of prayer uh, for our time, and then we'll jump right in. Father, thank you for this time where we get to transition into the word of God. Lord, I pray now that you would remove any distractions or hindrances that may try to come about to try to distract us or derail us from what it is that you would have for us on today. Now, Lord, I pray that you would go before us, that you would allow us an opportunity to hear what it is that you would have for us, that you would remove me out of the way, that people wouldn't be impressed with my oratory skills, but that they would be absolutely blown away by you and thankful to you that you have invited us into this greater narrative. Lord, we thank you. We love you. It's in your son's name. We pray and give thanks. Amen. And amen. One of the one of my favorite dessert places is a place called Cold Stone Creamery. Anybody remember Cold Stone Creamery? And uh, yeah, everybody remember Cold Stone Creamery. Uh, many of you don't know this, but I used to work at Cold Stone Creamery. Um, so there was one that was in Tri-County Mall. And then I'm not going to tell you the, long, the, the, the whole story, but just know I got moved to the one in Westchester. One of the things about Cold Stone Creamer, if you've never been there before, is that they uh, they make your ice cream right in you know make your ice cream right in front of you. It's like what Minchie's is, but way better. Um, and so they mix your ice cream on this Cold Stone i.e. Cold Stone Creamery, and uh, you can do whatever you want. It's one of the most amazing places to ever work at, but it's intense. It's one of the most intense interviews I've ever done. The most intense onboarding done as well. But it was my favorite place to get dessert. So I was super excited about working here because if you uh, work at Cold Stone Creamery, you already know where I'm going. You get free ice cream. Now, if you knew how to work this, you could get more than just free ice cream. That's another conversation for another day. That's not what we're talking about today. But here's the thing. It was a gauntlet. So when I when I got interviewed, they interview you, they ask you a whole gambit of different questions. They ask if you can sing. They ask you quick math right on the spot. They're like asking you all of these things. It just doesn't make sense. And then once you get um, 
uh, hired, then they make you go through what's called a training. And this training was intense. They would teach you all of the songs that you got to know. Every time somebody would tip you, there was a song that you needed to know. And the amount of money that they tipped you depended on the song that you would have to sing. So you had to know multiple different songs. You had to know all of the recipes backwards and forwards. You needed to know how to make waffle cones. And uh, you needed to know how to you know, use the cash register. After you did that, they literally fed you out to the wolves. And that's essentially what it was. I don't care what nobody would say. People are wolves, especially on a Friday night in Union Center, where it used to be the rave up there and not whatever it is now. Um, and I remember it. My first time being in Westchester, Colson Creamery, I'm on, uh, I'm on the line and um, I got all of this stuff swimming in my head. But here's the thing. They never gave you an opportunity to actually go and like make the ice cream. They never like gave you the opportunity to actually put what you knew in your head into practice. The first time you learned how to do all of this in real time was on Friday night when the line was out the door. Now, as you can imagine, this was a, a train wreck for me because everything was moving so much more faster than what I thought. You know, there were people who were tipping over here, but I'm pulling ice cream here. You don't pull ice cream with scoops, but you got these metal scoops that you got to know and you got to know the right dimensions and this and the other. It's cool in theory to know how to do it. But in the process, when people are yelling at you and people are saying you're going too slow and the ice cream is harder, everything was moving fast. And I didn't know what I was doing. I was slowing up the line. And it got to the point where I was moving so slow. I was so rattled that they demoted me to cleanup duty. And I remember after my shift thinking, man, I know everything I'm supposed to know, but why wasn't it working? Like, I don't understand it. I'm going back and playing things over in my head over and over and over again. Like, I know cupcake. I know the uh, birthday cake remix, you know, uh, deal. I, I know how to make apple pie a la mode. Why couldn't I remember this in the moment? Why was I fumbling over how to make a waffle cone? Like, I, I don't understand it. I knew everything but I didn't know how to apply everything. And when it mattered most, what I had in my head was absolutely useless because I didn't have the opportunity to flesh this stuff out. Now, we laugh at this, but what's the story? What's, 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 what do we learn from my demise in Colstall? Well, the thing that we can learn from that is just because you know a lot, doesn't necessarily mean that you actually know a lot. That there's a difference between knowing and acting on what you know. These are totally different things that you can be intellectually dense and simultaneously worthless at the same time. And some of us have come, have, have felt like me on the line before. Nah, you wasn't pulling ice cream. But you've been following the Lord. You've been walking with God. Y'all learn a lot of stuff about God. But when it comes to application or how to put shoe leather to our faith, our faith, we feel like fish out of water. You know a lot about prayer. You and I know a lot about prayer. I've taught you all these different things and all these different modes about prayer. But when we get into the thick of it, sometimes we may not know how to practice it. We can argue the deep tenets of the faith. Some of y'all like y'all some G's in it. Y'all can go and y'all can y'all can fight with the best of them theologically. But when it comes to actually forgiving that person who wronged you. It's hard for us to put it into practice. 
We know so much about Jesus, but to actually be an imitator of him is, is simply not possible for us to apply at times. Where in a lot of ways, we come here on Sunday mornings and we get a lot of information like I did during those training sessions, but there's no real space for us to flesh this stuff out. But this idea of fleshing it out comes with something else, though. It's not so much that you need a space to flesh things out, but what I would surmise is that you also need a model that you can follow who have rightly applied what it is that you're learning. It's one thing for you to know it. There's another opportunity for you to see it. It's easy to repeat something that you see. And this is what's important for us. Because if we're going to be imitators of Christ, we need to be following people who are imitating Christ. It's one thing to know a lot about Jesus, but there's another thing when we get to sit at the feet of somebody who's been walking with the Lord for a while. So now you've got a model that you can actually imitate. And this is the nuance here. This is what is discipleship and disciple making. This is this whole idea that I'm getting at. There's this idea that we follow and imitate uh, Christ in the life of others. This is this idea of disciple making. But then you hear terms like discipleship and disciple making, and, and we need to understand the difference of these. For the sake of conversation, discipleship, is simply the entire process of you becoming more mature in your faith. So when somebody says, man, I'm in the process of becoming more like Christ, that's discipleship. That's this fancy term that we call sanctification, that all of the steps that God is taking you through to mature you from an immature believer to a mature believer, that whole process, we can encapsulate and call it discipleship. Everybody say discipleship. We're going to go in the classroom today because I need us to understand this. Discipleship is the process. You hear me? You didn't, you didn't ever hear me say that it's a class. It's the entire process that God is using to conform you into the image of the sun, where you started off and you was cussing everybody out. And then over time, you slowly only cussed out five people, you know, that week. And then it got to one person that week. And now you're at a point where you're praying for them instead of that process is encompassing discipleship. As my brother, Russell McCutcheon, and I always love to, um, put you guys, you all in uh, the know of people who, man, uh, mean a lot to me. Russell McCutcheon is one of my best friends. He's a pastor of Reconciliation Church in Nightdale, North Carolina. He says this about discipleship. He says it's the actual practice of one learning, being able to see and apply the truths for the purpose of transformation and then reproduction of such in the life of another. That's essentially what he's saying. But disciple making is this. This guy by the name of Ken and Vaughn that you see on the screen. Ken and Vaughn was the is the uh, president and uh, director of an organization called Downline Ministries. In 2011, I went through this and he told us that disciple making uh, can be summed up this way, that it is truth and life transference in the context of a relationship for the purposes of making disciples who make disciples. Did you catch it? 
Discipleship is the entire process. Disciple making is this relationship that you have with one another where there's truth and life transference in this relationship that will in turn allow you to be equipped and matured enough so that you can go and go do the same with someone else. Discipleship is the overall process. Disciple making is the actual action of it. What's the secret sauce that we miss? What's the link that can take us from being spiritual cul-de-sacs or people who just know a lot in their head, who are intellectually or theologically obese, and those who are, let's say, theologically fit or mature believers? That there's this process of us doing life with one another. Because here is the reality. That information without an avenue of transformation and application can create accidental Pharisees. Many of you probably like, what's a Pharisee? Whenever you go through the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's this group of people who are always around heckling Jesus as he's doing ministry. They're always like, well, that's not actually how it's supposed to go. Or you know what? No, you, you're doing this wrong. They're always the ones, the peanut gallery, that always seem to have a lot to say. And Jesus is always coming at their neck. Like you whitewashed tomb. You brood of vipers. Y'all much are much more concerned about looking the part than actually being the part. If we're not careful, information without an avenue of transformation and application will create accidental Pharisees. If you just come in here every Sunday, you come to every Bible study, but you ain't doing life with someone. You ain't allowing, uh, you're not sitting at the feet of someone and you're not pouring your life out into someone else. You can become an accidental Pharisee too. Or to say it another way, you can be that, that, that crotchety Christian who just sits and critiques everything, but ain't doing nothing. Disciple making plays a crucial role in this. And it's important for us that we are called to be disciple makers. And this is what we want to be known as as a church. And we've tried to do everything we can to help you grow to do this. But we feel like, man, this is what the church, the local church is supposed to be. That as, doc, as uh, Dr. Brian Carter has coined this uh, phrase for his church, um, Concord Baptist Church in Dallas, he's, he coins his church, we grow people. And I like that, but I think we need to take it one step further that we want to be a place that equips, trains, and provides spaces for disciple-making to occur and then to unleash these individuals into wor in the world to do the same. Disciple-making is absolutely crucial. That you and I play a part in helping people grow in their faith. Again, you didn't hear me say that you need to be a pastor. You didn't hear me say that you need a seminary degree. You didn't hear me say that you got to be uh, walking with the Lord for X amount of years. If you've put your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ, can I cut across the field and tell you something? You get to be a part of disciple-making as well. Because the truth of the matter is, to be in a disciple-making relationship with someone else, all you got to be is one step ahead of them. Because disciple-making is literally you saying, follow me as I follow Christ. You looking at someone and saying, look, I know that you want what I got. And so follow me as I follow Christ. 
meaning that there's going to be a space for us to do life with one another. It ain't going to just be that, man, you know, I want you to come to this Bible study with me, but it's, hey, I'm opening up my calendar for you to be with me. And we need to hear this because I think in a lot of ways, we try to write ourselves out of the kingdom work. We think that it's way more this other stuff. And literally what God is calling us to do in the kingdom of God is to make disciples, make spiritual lookalikes. It ain't hard. And so this morning, I want to share with you two ways in the scriptures where we see this and why it's important for us, why the way we have modeled our church in a lot of ways is to provide it as a space or greenhouses for you to be equipped, but then at the same time for y'all to build relationships with one another so that these relationships could occur. But then we also at the same time want to unleash you. And so I want to share with you from the scriptures why this is important. But then secondly, I want to, thirdly, I want to share with you how we plan to continue to do this as a church. The first thing that we need to see if disciple making is going to be important for us, as always, we need to look to Jesus's model. We need to look to Jesus's model. If you want to know what disciple making looks like at its best, look to Jesus. You can open up your gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're going to show you this beautiful narrative of Jesus forming these disciples into the early church leaders that they are. This is essentially Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's Jesus showing us and knowing that he was going to go to the cross and die in our place and for our sins. But along the way, he is literally discipling these ragtag group of people. And this is not in the, in the manuscript, but I love the fact that, man, the people that he chooses are the least likely that you would think that he would choose. You would think that he would choose the most put together type of people. You know, the people who got everything put together, the guys uh, who, who, who had already been in school, who had come from the best families, who had come from the right stock, who came from the right side of the tracks. You would think that he would choose the A-list team, but it seems as if Jesus chose the D-list people, the fishermen who everybody overlooked. And he would take that group of ragtag individuals and they would be the ones who would change the world, which gives us an encouragement to know that, man, all of us can be a part of this, because if he could take fishermen and disciple them into being the apostles of the early church, that he can use all of us as well. It's the reason why he didn't choose those types of people, because he wanted to include all of us in the narrative, that all of us have a part to play, from the pastor to the last person in the pew. We are all a part of this particular process of helping make disciples. What's a disciple? A follower of Jesus. So we look to Jesus' model. Mark chapter three is interesting because it gives us Jesus' psyche in on this idea of disciple making. Look at the text. It should come on the screen. In Mark three, it says this. Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted and they called. He came and they came to him. I underline this so that you can catch it. He appointed 12 whom he also named apostles to be with him to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the 12 to Simon. He gave the name Peter and to James, the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John. And he gave the name Borneges, that is, son of thunder, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. He called them to be apostles. And we shout about that. We like that. You know, they get authority and they can cast out demons and all of this. We get real excited about the, the tail end of this verse. 
There have been countless sermons preached on the, the, the demographics of the, of the group of disciples. And yes, it is shout worthy to see the group of people that he brought together. Where on one hand, you got a tax collector, a man who works for the man, and then you got another man in the group who's literally like modern day Al Qaeda who literally would take down the man and they in relationship with each other. It's, it's a fascinating deal. We shout about this part. But I want you to catch what Jesus called them to do. Yes, he called them to be apostles, but there's this one phrase that we always gloss over that's absolutely crucial. And it says that he wanted them to be with him. With him. In a relationship with him. They needed to be close enough to him, not only to hear his teachings, because all throughout the gospel, you see that there are always crowds that are learning about what Jesus is teaching. There's always crowds around him, but they needed to be with him to catch his actions. It was Dawson Trotman, this guy with this cool hair, uh, hair set right here, man. He said this, he said, things are often caught, not taught. And that's good that most of the stuff that you learn is often going to be caught, not taught. Meaning that there's going to be many times where you will learn a lot of stuff, but the best times where you've actually learned the stuff is when you get to see it. I cannot tell you the amount of things that I learned as a pastor resident at Fellowship Memphis Church. I was driving around Pastor Brian Loritz in my old 1992 Toyota Celica. It was a five-speed. I called it Allison. Two-tone red. And it wasn't two-tone on, on like, because I did it. It was because it was old. And I used to drive this rickety five-speed, you know, uh, Toyota Celica around Memphis. And he would be sitting in the driver, in the passenger seat. And, uh, and I would watch him. I would get these opportunities where I got to just be with him. And as I'm just with him, there would be this, these exchanges that would take place. I would see him early mornings praying over his text. It would be this while we're driving, while he's asking me what, I, what he could be praying for me for. It would be these moments where um, I watch him preach a sermon and then he would you know, walk with me to my car. He'll get in and I would see him uh, debrief within himself. And then I would watch him as he would have to get ready to do it all over again. I would be with him during times where he would fly to different places to preach. And I would be sitting there in P.F. Chang's and all of this. And I'm watching how he interacts with people. I'm watching how he interacts with members. I've been to bedside uh, areas where, where people were dying and he's sitting there. And I'm just watching how he would navigate it. In a lot of ways, the way I preach, the way I interact with you all, all came because I got to sit at his feet. I caught that stuff. More than any other seminary degree could teach me, I learned how to pastor by sitting at the feet of men that I used to admire. Most things are caught, not taught. Now, I'm not saying that teaching is bad, but what I am saying is that there is something about when we open up our lives and we allow people in for them to be able to see us put shoe leather to our faith that matters. And Jesus provided the necessary um, opportunities through relationship for these disciples to see how these truths were fleshed out. If you've been walking with us through our daily devotional show, I keep telling y'all, as Jesus would teach parables to crowds, there would be these moments where the disciples would be like, we don't know what he's talking about. 
and Jesus would make these spaces where they can come together and he probably frustrated and this and the other, but they get to spend intimate time with him where he would debrief with them and he would share with them what was going on. He would encourage them in private. There was these moments where the disciples caught what it was that he was doing. And it begs the question for us, is our lives accessible? Jesus made his life accessible to these disciples. They were with him. They ate with him. They slept with him. They, they like Wherever he was at, they were there. And I know what y'all thinking. I, I can see it in everybody's face. Everybody kind of like, <gasps> you telling me I got to open up my life to people? I don't trust people. Or I'm too busy for this. Or my life isn't that great. Or I'm not living this stuff out like I am supposed to, but like how, you know, I'm fronting like I am, but I'm not really living this stuff out. The amazing thing about disciple making is that it has accountability baked into it. This is what I love about it, because as you say, follow me as I follow Christ. Now you get put on the hot seat as well. It's not that you are called to be perfect, but you're called to be obedient. And a lot of us don't like that type of commitment when the spotlight comes on us, when you get put in a fishbowl, because now it's calling you to be what? Holy. It's funny, I'll, I'll never forget this. I was in college and I had just become a Christian and this guy who I really credit a lot of how I disciple other men, um, he used to tell me this, his name is Jamie Borchick. He, he used to tell me all the time, Brandon, I'm not looking for perfection. I'm just looking for obedience because that's what Jesus looked for in his disciples. You never see Jesus in any of the gospel accounts condemning his disciples because they weren't perfect. You'll never find it. If he ever has to reprimand his disciples, it's because they weren't being obedient. Jesus models this within the framework of a relationship. He's allowing them to hear him teach some stuff, but then they also get to watch it. But then we see this roadmap of what this looks like, because I know what y'all thinking. Like, what, what, what? OK, I get it. I'm supposed to open up my life to these people. I'm supposed to, you know, invite them in. But 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 what's supposed to happen? Well, it's interesting because, again, look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. I want to make this very clear for you based off of what we see in the gospel accounts. You can take it to the bank. You can even test it if you want to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And as you read it, I want you to watch the interactions that Jesus has with his disciples. What does it look like as he's helping them to be conformed into his image? What does this look like as he's preparing them for what it is that they're called to do? First, we see early on in the gospels, he taught, he modeled it, the disciples watched, and then they would debrief about it. Then there would be this moment in time where he would model it, they would help him as he's doing something like the feeding of the 5,000. And then they debriefed about it. Then there would be these moments where they did the work. Jesus helped them. And then they debriefed about it. Then there would be these moments where they did the work. Jesus stood back and did nothing. And they would debrief about it. And then eventually, towards the end of their time with Jesus, they would teach, they would model it to a new group of people who would watch, and then they would debrief about it, and Jesus would not even be in the picture. 
Throughout the Gospels, we see this. And this was the preparation for them, that they would do this so much and it would be so repetitive. In fact, they would say in the Gospel accounts, whenever you saw Jesus teach, those disciples would have probably heard those stories roughly 500 times. They would have constantly been inundated with this and watching Jesus model this and teach it. They would have constantly saw it. In fact, John would tell us in his Gospel that there are so many other things that Jesus did with us that, man, books couldn't even fill it. Y'all just got a sliver of what he's done. And they would constantly be in this loop over and over and over again to the point when you get to Matthew 28 and he gives the Great Commission. And he says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to baptize uh, in the, uh, teaching them all that I've uh, 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 that you've observed, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. When they got to that point in Matthew 28, you don't see the disciples look around like uh, Jesus. Uh, so how do we do this? You don't see a how to section after that. You don't see any. They know exactly what they're supposed to do. Why? Because they were with him. So who's around you that you can invite to follow you as you follow Christ? On a real practical level. I love when, 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 when guys get, you know, come to faith and they start asking questions and I just like sitting with them. If you available, you can just you just got to text me. You can come sit at my house and you'll see how I interact with my kids. You'll see the good, bad and the ugly. You ain't going to always see when I'm hitting it a thousand. You're going to see when I cry and when I'm stressed. If you want to know what it means to love your spouse or know, aspire to get married, I'm going to let you in on how I am with my wife. I'm going to let you see how I interact with Krista. If you're aspiring to have parents, it's one thing for me to teach you about those things. It's another thing for me to show you it. To open up my life so that you can see it. So that you can learn what to do and what not to do. That when you see and you hear about praying for others, I want you to know how to do that. In a very practical way, um, Ever since I've been in ministry, one of the things that I've done is any guy who comes to me and says that he feels called to ministry, I give them this uh, one deal. I say, man, if you feel like you called to ministry, I don't think you are. And I usually do that because I think that it's a high bar to become a pastor. I take it seriously. But I say, if that's the case. OK. You can meet me at five in the morning. Or we're going to come together and you're going to meet me at 830 at this coffee shop. And we're just going to do life with one another. And my vow to you is if you are obedient, I will teach you everything that I know. I would love to tell you that there are hundreds of men that I've trained up to be pastors. I would say that it's been about 50 guys who have started with me. There's only been four that have actually completed it. Because at the end of the day, the commitment to saying that, man, I am going to give of my time and my life to you is going to require a commitment from you to show up is important. And so as you are opening up your life to one another to practice these things, it's a two way street where we have to be committed to opening up our lives to say, follow me as I follow Christ. But at the same time, we got to hold people accountable to show up as well. But then secondly, here's what I want to share with you, that this was the point all along. 
that if you were to look back in your scriptures, I went to the Gospels first, but now let's moonwalk back into Genesis chapter one and two. It's interesting because from the beginning, what we see is that this is one of the core plans that God the Father had this idea of disciple making woven within the creation narrative, that this was just supposed to happen. And then it was reinforced in the New Testament. What do I mean by this? Genesis chapter one and two, we see the father gives Adam and Eve a special job to do. He says to fill the earth and subdue it. He says multiply and subdue the earth and fill it. Right. And we get this and we think about reproduction. We're thinking about make babies. Right. Like that's the that's the thing. That's what we get at. This idea that, man, we are supposed to just continue to repopulate. And yes, that is true in a physical stance, but it's also spiritually as well. They were to reproduce themselves spiritually to help bring up individuals uh, in the relationship, in the mandates that were given to them through their relationship with the father. They were to, in, in a lot of ways, make spiritual lookalikes to help carry out this idea to fill the earth and subdue it. That was the original intent was for them to reproduce this type of relationship that they have with the father in Eden in the lives of all of those who would come out after them. That was the goal. That was the way that they were supposed to do it. Of course, we see in Genesis chapter three, everything gets messed up. And Satan's plan, hear me, it, it literally was to shift the focus of, of Adam and Eve off of God's mandate to a selfish mandate of themselves. That it went from not just multiplying spiritual lookalikes that would uh, fall in love with God, but that they would make these spiritual lookalikes who were literally supposed to be self-centered and selfish. Because Satan knew that if there were more spiritual lookalikes, if there were all of these uh, followers who have been uh, replicated, who had dense relationships with the father, that indeed there would be nothing that uh, the enemy would be able to do. And it's interesting because we see this in the Old Testament. And we see how God's plan for disciple making may have been marred to some degree by sin, but it never stopped. He kept reissuing the same command to the people for them to be fruitful and multiply. He would continue this mandate all throughout the Old Testament. We get Jesus's example, but then once Jesus leaves, we see this individual named Paul come onto the scene. And so your New Testament confirms what happens in the Old Testament. Paul would pick up the pen in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, and he would say this. He would say, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. And this is a man who literally at one point in his life was literally the number one enemy to the church. He was on his way to get letters so that he can get some more believers uh, persecuted. And Jesus changed his heart. And he goes from Saul to Paul, as your story says, on the Damascus Road. And you know that story. And the reason why I share that is because, again, here goes a man who was a murderer who then becomes a missionary. And he's used in this plan to make disciples. Two thirds of your Bible is written by a man who was a former enemy of Christianity, which means we don't know what God can do with people. But then the other thing is that he can take the very people who may have been enemies who have now fallen deep in love with him, who can be used in this disciple making process to impact literally the entire world. That's why you can't quit on people. That's why you can't write people off. Because you never know how God can use a person. You never have any idea of this. 
But it's interesting because uh, in, in the book of Philippians, this is another letter that Paul would write to a church. He's writing to a church and he says this uh, again. This is Paul. He would say this in verse 17, chapter three. He would say, join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. Again, he's inviting this idea of making disciples. Y'all follow me as I follow Christ. And once we do this, then you do it with someone else. In his last letter that we have before he was literally executed, he's writing a letter to his, we would say his son in the ministry, his spiritual son. His name is Timothy. And this is one of the final things that he says to Timothy. Now, mind you, he's about to die. But this is the final thing, some of the final things that he would say to him from his, his, literally his deathbed. He knows at any point that the executioner is about to come in and is going to end his life. And this is what was important to Paul. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. The man who wrote two-thirds of your New Testament his last words were not, get me out of prison. His last words was, keep making disciples. It's never changed. But I, I know what you're thinking. Really, do I, like, if I was to make a disciple, like, if I was to help somebody grow in their faith, will it really matter at all? I'm just one person. I'm going to give you an example. If we were to hold the population still for the sake of this illustration, uh, I, I want to share this with you that, that literally has always blown my mind. If we only put the call to make disciples on one person who's supposed to be this super evangelist who was supposed to just go and to make all of these disciples, and let's just say they were sweet at it, they were really good, and it was just one person to do it, and at the maximum that they can get was a thousand people, that every year they would take on a thousand people and help them become a disciple of Christ, a mature follower of Jesus Christ. If they did this every day, it would take that person roughly 15,000 years to reach everybody. Now, what I want you to think about is the spiritual maturity of those thousands, that thousand people he would reach. They would not be able to grow as spiritually dense as you would want them because of the sheer amount of people. So you would have a thousand people who would be an inch wide. It would be a mile wide and an inch deep. Let's just say they would be immature Christians. 15,000 years. But let's hold population still. But what if we take one faithful believer who would grab one other person and they would commit to a year of disciple making relationship? where they would say, you know what, I'm going to teach you everything that I know. And so for 12 months, they would be with this person to the point where they are able to reproduce. And at the end of that year, they went out, both of them and said, you know what, now what we're going to do is I'm going to take a person and you take a person. And they would keep doing this over and over and over again, that every time it would be one person who would take on one person and one person take on one person and one person to take on another. If this was to play out, the world would be reached. But I want you to think about the... I want you to think about the maturity of all of these believers, where if one person was to get together with another person and say, follow me as I follow Christ, they would be a lot more uh, mature in their faith. 
But you know how long it would take for them to reach the entire world? 37 years. Disciple making ain't about addition, it's multiplication. See, we make it seem like, man, we're insignificant in this play, in this fight, in this opportunity to help people grow in their faith. But if we just committed to literally finding one person, there could be a cascading effect where literally everybody's talking about, man, I can't wait for God to come back. He could literally come back if we were both faithful in this command. 37 years. If all of us played our part. Let me get out of your hair. How does how do we play this out in the church? Again, in a lot of ways, this has been more aspirational than anything because of the ebbs and flows of life. We've now small. We've truncated. We've had COVID. We got monkey pox. We got all other pox. We got all kind of stuff. We've shut down clothes, move locations. We've done a whole bunch of stuff. And so uh, our heart is still in the right place where we want to equip the saints for the work of ministry, as it says in Ephesians chapter four. We want to try to provide, make this place a greenhouse for people's lives to grow and for those discipleship relationships to occur. And so how do we do this? Again, some of this is aspirational. Some of this stuff is happening. Some of this stuff I'm praying uh, that we would be able to get back into as uh, the year progresses. Uh, but there are a few things that we used to do to help in this. Equipping and training is one of the things that we do. Uh, we go into greater detail. We talk about the importance. I really try to equip you in learning how to do the essentials of the faith give you enough tools in your spiritual tool belt so that you can grow, that you don't necessarily need me. I need you to know how to study your Bible so that you don't always just live like you just taking one big gulp of air on Sunday and then you holding it all the way until next Sunday. I don't need you doing that. I need you to know how to, to study the scriptures for yourself. I need you to understand how to pray. I want you to know all of these different things that we do, like spiritual practices of studying the scripture, fasting, evangelism. We talk about Lectio Divina and all of these different things, these training opportunities to give you the things that you are needed to help you to grow. And we do these and we try to make it as reproducible and easy for you so that you can go out and then model it with someone else where you can say you know what look i know you are struggling with prayer but come with me i'm gonna teach you the act style of uh, prayer and we're gonna pray every day together for five minutes that's why we do the classes to equip you so that you can go out in those relationships to do it you know there's relational opportunities that occur so we try to we try not to like over overload your schedules with everything because we don't want to legislate your relationships but we do want to put you in proximity with one another enough so that man there will be these opportunities for y'all to say you know what we should get together now again because of covid and all these things we haven't been able to do much but before we used to have men's groups and women's groups we would had a married couples group we had all these different things that would happen and the goal was for us to lock arms with one another so that there would be opportunities for these type of relationships to occur but then lastly, one of the things that we did that was good was in our discipleship groups, when the men's group and the women's groups would get together, one of the things that, that we were wanting to include and what we'll get back to is this idea that there's accountability that's in this, that there will be a question of, you know, how has it been with you discipling someone else? Like we need to hold each other accountable to this because disciple making is messy and we don't like mess. <laughs> we don't want to be open and vulnerable to that degree. And so it's going to take like-minded individuals who are all in the fight to say, hey, how are you doing with it? How can I help you? To keep us in the fight, 
to keep us in this idea of helping people grow spiritually and, and we ourselves being able to grow spiritually. These things we're, we're, we're getting back into a, a hopefully a good rhythm of being able to do here towards the end of the year to be able to make this an opportunity for us to be a disciple making church. And I want to congratulate and I want to uh, I want to just extend my thanks to the congregation for sticking in through all of these ups and downs of the church. But I'm, I'm also thankful that I get to hear stories of you all actually doing this. And I want to encourage you to continue to do this. All it takes is a relationship with one person. I've heard it said that disciple making is not hard. It's just impossible without Jesus. And I think that's true, that none of this is possible if Jesus didn't go before us, if he didn't die in our place and for our sins, if he didn't give us the tools that was necessary, if he didn't give us the ability to have the Holy Spirit to live on the inside of us, this would not be possible. But because he went before us, because he died in our place and for our sins, we get an opportunity to make disciples. It's not you have to make disciples, but you get to make disciples. And it's one of the best decisions and best journeys that you can do because you get a front row seat of watching somebody grow in their relationship with the Lord. There's nothing like when you get to watch somebody who comes to the faith and they grow and you watch them take steps that they would have never taken before. You watch them to, uh, uh, exercise their faith in ways that you've never seen before. There's something that the Lord uh, there's something that the Lord has given us as a gift. And that is disciple making. At the end of the day, my hope and prayer is that we would be like Paul to the Thessalonians in first Thessalonians chapter one. He says this in First Thessalonians uh, that, man, First I, I, Thessalonians chapter two that I think is is crucial. Something that I, I hope and pray that when it gets all said and done, we can say this to a group of people. He says this to this church. So we care for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And he says this. He says, for what is our hope? Our joy are the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. What he's saying is in the end of the day, when he gets to see Jesus face to face, he's going to be like, man, Jesus is going to be like, what did you do with what, what, what you were given? And essentially what Paul is saying, is he's going to look back at this church and say them. We poured our life out in them. That's their joy. The product of disciple making is seeing faithful followers who are going and doing the same. If this church was to close tomorrow, y'all would be my joy. I would be able to look at Jesus and say, is it not them? Of course it's them. And I want this to be the same for you. God can do so much through us if we allow him to do it. If we take the steps into uh, take the steps of being in the adventure that he's called us to. All of us have a part to play. Let's go before the Lord and let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for this opportunity and this time to be reminded from the scriptures that we are called to make disciples. Lord, I pray that even now we would leave from this place saying, who can I who can I begin a relationship with? To say, follow me as I follow Christ. Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom and discernment to start small, to be able to do the things that we already know. So just model and live out what it means to be a follower of Christ in relationship with someone else. And Lord, I pray that you would blow our minds by what it is that you would show us in these moments. 
that there will be an opportunity for us to be able to see in real time people's lives growing and being shaped because of their time that they spent with us. We thank you. We love you. This is your son's name. We pray in your thanks. Man and...